This episode of Mark My Words is sponsored by the Coatings Alliance, makers of C2 Paint. When C2 President Tom Hill asked me my opinion of what would make a program for their super premium wood finish product, Guard, more attractive to dealers, I shared my view that dealers look for three things when they're considering putting new products in their stores. They want a low initial investment, they don't wanna to have to spend any money on equipment, and they wanna know that if the program is not successful, that they can send the product back. And so that's exactly what C2 put together in their program for Guard. I only wish my daughter Buckwheat would listen as well. So if you're interested in hearing more about this program, you can do one of two things. You can go to c2dealer.com to read more, or you can email Tom Hill yourself and ask him any questions you have. That's th, the number four, at c2paint.com. Hey everybody, it's Mark. Thanks for joining me today. Really cool episode for you today. With me today is, is my Aunt Emily, the only member of my family that I'm aware of, at least that, that has a wiki page on uh, Wikipedia. So I, I think she's uh, cool as can be. And I decided to do this episode. You know, I've, I've written a number of times about uh, my Aunt Emily, very unusual person. She's had a, a remarkable career that in addition to literally countless hundreds of awards, uh, which are all over her house for uh, various topics, for writing, for screenwriting, for su support and help for people with disabilities, the, the number of, of things that she's won awards for is unbelievable, but 23 of those hundreds of awards, hundreds of awards have been Emmy Awards. be called out as as the best uh, uh, in, in the whole country at what you do. And, you know, I talk to paint dealers all the time and I, I talk to people that that follow me and and people always ask, like, you know, oh, how's how's Buck doing or or, or how's Aunt Emily? And so I, I thought it would be interesting. She's she's such a dynamite woman with a remarkable career who has literally touched millions of lives uh, with all that she's accomplished. And so, you know, to me, she's she's just my aunt. So we play it casual. I put on my Yankee shirt and cap, which is pretty much how I like to dress anyway. But uh, uh, we just play it casual and just, just had a fun conversation. I, I have to tell you, I had to edit this uh, more than any other podcast, or I should say I will have to edit this uh, more than any other podcast I, I've ever done, because usually I, I record there around 40 minutes or so when I cut them off and then I edit them down to 25 or 30 minutes. Uh, in this case, Aunt, Aunt Emily and I were on the call for well over an hour and 15 minutes. Once we got started, uh, we couldn't stop. No different than any other time when I, I go over to her house or or she comes here or something that the two of us never shut up. So enjoy meeting her. And, you know, this is something different for me. I, I've, I've never really brought you guys into my life on a podcast like this before. I've always, you know, really just reserved that for a few jokes in my blog. But, 
You know, it's it's interesting to me uh, how many of you uh, sort of follow along, not for the reason I think. I, I know that there are a great number of you that that follow along, not necessarily for the paint. And obviously those those readers are not necessarily coming to the podcasts, which are exclusively paint. And so I thought I would give this a shot and, and I hope you enjoy it. She's a dynamite woman. And so uh, let me know what you think, like, subscribe, and, and, and let me know what you think about my conversation with my aunt, Emily Pearl Kingsley. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining me today. With me today is the most special guest that I have ever had on this show before. I am so excited. The only guest that I've ever had that I remember, actually, that's not true. I was about to say the only guest that I ever told I loved, but I did have my father on as a guest. But really fabulous to be here today with my Aunt Emily Pearl Kingsley. Aunt Em, how are you today? I'm fine today. <laughs> I'm a special- today. today, I'm fine. I can't say that every day. <laughs> I thought I had a doctor appointment at seven this morning, so I got up at six. And then when I looked at my book, I found it's not till tomorrow. So I went back yeah. to bed for three hours. <laughs> Very nice. Very so nice. I'm Very in nice. great shape. Well, and we're going to start with the paint business because this is a, a paint blog. Okay. And even, even though even though you weren't born a Lipton, you, you did sneak into that paint royalty a little bit when you married well. You married into originally Tremont Paint when you married my Uncle Chuck Kingsley, right? Right. That's right. That's and what do you remember from back then? Seventy-two. We married. I think seventy-two. Seven. Yeah, seventy-two. <laughs> Long and, time ago. <laughs> and so, what do you remember from the paint business, if anything? I know Chuck spent probably thirty years in the paint stores as well as as a painting contractor. Do you remember anything from from your time in the paint business? Well, the first thing that I remember is that he would leave at 4.30 in the morning every day. That, yeah. was, um, that was something I definitely had to get used to. Uh, yeah. Because he would, you know, he had to review all the painters and uh, what jobs had been finished and what hadn't and what needed more paint and how much and where they were going and all that sort of thing. So he was, he was out of the house by 4.45 or something like that in all kinds of weather um, I remember those days. Oh, man. Oh, you know, I remember when I was younger. Uh, I So the name of the company that we're talking about, the painting contractor that uh, my uncle, Emily's husband, ultimately ended up owning and buying all their paint from Tremont Paint, my family's business, uh, was J.M. Charles Painting. And, and I remember, M, I used to go to the shop at J.M. Charles when I was the truck driver I'd go every single morning and you'd, you'd be there. Uh, you talk about how Chuck would get up at 4.30. We'd be delivering paint to the shop in Elmsford at, at 6.30. By 6, and right. So you'd get there at 6, 6.30 with the truck and there would be 30 painters hanging around. You couldn't unload fast enough because they were all grabbing their crap and trying to get out of there. And then there would be Chuck in the middle of all of that with the clipboard, you know, just trying to send yeah, people get, in various directions and everybody to the correct job with the correct equipment and the correct amount of paint of the right color and god uh, and some right. at those in those days they were painting all of the banks in westchester county oh and, i remember that and banks 
for one thing, banks were only open uh, for the, that is they were closed on the weekends. Right. So so getting up at four thirty in the morning wasn't just a nine to uh, a Monday to Friday deal. It was very often on the weekends as well if they I were paying banks and they had scaffolding because a lot of these banks were two or three stories high. And um, so there there are a million funny stories, sad stories, you know, exciting stories. It was a, a very colorful way to make a living. Well, <laughs> how long did how long did Chuck and my father, Billy, uh, who were brother in laws, how long did they uh, how long did they work together? Do you know that? I think the whole time. I mean, it, it was Listen, I, I didn't know all the details and I wasn't right. part of this. So I wasn't sure how much of it was J.M. Charles and how much of it was Tremont Payne. And, uh, I don't think anybody was sure at some of that, <laughs> some of those times, right? That is true. Um, but I think it, so it evolved that, that Billy was more in terms of, of the store yep. and Chuck was more in the direction of the contracting and the, you yep. know, going out into the world uh, yep. to that cover the jobs. You correct? have a good memory. That's exactly <laughs> how they did it. That uh -huh. is exactly how they did it. Right. And so not being in the paint business, you, you had a career uh, on your own. And this is one of the regular jokes uh, that I put in my blog all the time is, is you, you can't walk into your house uh, without tripping over an Emmy award. And so <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd love to start with your time at Sesame Street because I, I think that that's the foundation for so much of the other work that you've done. So how did you get fair. involved? Tell us a little bit of, about your career at Sesame Street. Well, I started at Sesame Street in 1970. So that predates my marriage with Chuck by a couple of years. I was already right. working. And that was, at a, that was as a writer, right? As a writer, right. Well, the, the story is kind of funny because when I was working in television for called a bunch of years before that, but I was never doing any writing. I had never been a writer for anything, but I had done production, I had done editing, I had done all sorts of different odd jobs in television. And I was working on a game show that got canceled. So I was out of work when Sesame Street came on the air and uh, I was home, I was able to watch it. There was a lot of promotion, a lot of press about it. And so I watched it and I fell in love and I said, this is where I need to be. This is, it's, it's for kids, it's funny, it has the right kind of attitude, it's trying to make the world a better place, blah, blah, blah. So this was, when Sesame first came on, I found out that some of the technicians, the cameramen, lighting guys, that kind of thing, were the same guys as I had worked on on a previous job. So I went and I begged them, get me an interview on this show. They got me an interview, but what I found out was that because it was brand new and it had just gone on the air, they were fully staffed. They had everybody they needed. They, I, I went, I interviewed in production. They had all the production people. I went to editing. They had all the people they needed. In I went to the research department. I had done research on the Dick Cavett show and they had all of the research people they needed. I went meticulously through every department they had because I would have done anything. I would have swept the floor if they wanted me to. And everybody was fully staffed with everything they needed. I went to the Muppets and I said, I heard they needed somebody to sew the puppets. And I said, let me sew the puppets. I just wanted to get in there somehow. 
And they said that they heard that they were starting a writer's workshop because it was so difficult to write this stuff, to write curriculum, teaching stuff to three-year-olds in a certain way. You had to teach the way they said you had to teach and it had to be three minutes long and it had to be funny and it had to be understandable by a three-year-old. So I went... Um, and, and there was, was nobody in this space doing this at the time, right? Well, they this had was, some writers. They had some writers who were writing. But I mean, in general, Sesame Street was was the first to try yes. to do this, right? Absolutely yeah. the first. Absolutely. And uh, it was very experimental and, you know, very. Uh, so I went and I said, please, please put me on your writer's workshop and teach me how to do this. You know, I'll do anything. So, but I had been watching the show twice a day for nine months. I had been pestering them for nine months. And I'm, so they let me write some audition material. And after watching them twice a day for nine months, I knew the show very well. I knew the characters, I knew how they talked, I knew the humor, I knew, you know. So I wrote them a couple of audition pieces. I wrote an Ernie and Bert piece and I wrote a, a Kermit the Frog piece. And the two audition pieces that I wrote were right on were just exactly what they needed. So they put me on as a writer right away, even though I had never written anything, truly anything. Wow. So I've been a writer ever since. And that is, I've been a Sesame Street writer ever since. And that's 45 right. years that I stayed with them and kept doing it, kept churning out scripts. And so- It was the most wonderful, extremely just a, ecstatic experience of working on that show. So you worked with some other really talented people over the years. I, I know Jim Henson was uh, uh, in your circle early on. Do you want to talk about uh, your time with Jim or, or any of the other? You worked with some really amazing people over your career. I was, I was in a state of awe. And I tell you, those two audition pieces that I wrote to get into the show in the first place, you can only imagine the thrill of going onto the set and seeing those words that I wrote performed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz, Ernie and Bert wow. together, was an absolute miracle. And I tell you something, there's something about that set that I got the same thrill walking onto that set 45 years later that I did the very first day. There's something very magical about just, just being there. Everybody who worked on that show, had the same vision and had the same dedication to what we were doing. It wasn't just like a job. It was, it was uh, just sort of a way of life. And interestingly, a whole bunch of us of the early writers from the early days of the show, we still get together once a week for, on a Zoom to, you know, just be with each other uh, every week. And we chat and uh, laugh uh, That's a lot of Emmy Awards in the room. Oh, my goodness, I, yes. I mean, yeah. we, we were nominated almost every year. We didn't win every year, but we won a lot of years. So. I was going to say, 45 years on the show, I'm actually a little disappointed. Only 23 Emmys, you know? <laughs> That's. I don't know anybody you're, who's got 20. You're slacking. You're slacking, man. You're slacking. No. I, no. I remember being at your house like two years ago. I, I somehow even recall... Uh, blogging about this, but we're at your house. We're in the living room, uh, right by the fireplace, and and you have that big tree there on the left. And there was something back there that you wanted me to move. I don't remember what it was, but you were <laughs> like, "Oh, honey, could you do me a favor? Just go back there and 
you know, fluff up that pillow for me or something. I'm so I, I parked the tree, right? There's this, that huge tree there. I parked the tree and son of a gun sitting there collecting dust for nobody to see was, was another Emmy award. There's one oops, almost everywhere. There's yeah, one. I would think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's true. So you heavy. Oh my God. You can't heavy. walk without hitting an Emmy award in, the, in right. your house. It's funny. The first one that I ever got, um, which was, I guess, maybe for that first year, I was doing a lot of knitting in those days and I was knitting something with two different colors and I put one ball of wool on this poke and then, and then one ball on the other one so they wouldn't get all tangled up. So uh, it was very practical. Put them to good use. Oh, yeah. If you're gonna have to store 23 Emmys around your house, you might as well keep them functional, right? Right, now they're all over the place. Anyway, so that, that Sesame Street experience is, is interesting to me because, you know, I create a lot of content, which is what you were doing, uh, making Sesame Street was creating content, right? And how did that, uh, what changed, what happened there that from that experience you were able to, for, for 40 years, something grew from that seed that you were able to create content like that at, at that level Wow. For so many years, what inspired you about that, that, that was able to do that? Well, for one thing, just being on the show and being with this, this group of inspired, hilarious, funny, talented people was, you know, it was, it would energize you every single day. And, uh, it, and back it then when you were working for them, yeah. you were on the set, right? When you were well, working, I was working for them, you... I was writing at home. I was writing at home, oh, and you would you would get an assignment sheet, which would tell you you're you were in t responsible for a single show all by yourself, and it would tell you all the things that you were supposed to teach in that show. So, what your letter of the day you had the letter W, or you had the number of the day you had to write something about the number nine, or you know whatever it happened to be, and it told you which cast members you were to write for who would be available that day. And it told you uh, what your relational concept of the day was up, down, you know, uh, near, far, uh, loud, soft, whatever, you know, you would be assigned one of those and you were supposed to write on that topic. So you had a whole bunch of topics that you had to cover in a certain show. It was very difficult and very challenging. Uh, I have uh, no it, doubt at all that, that you, you were a, great writer to be able to do that. And I have no doubt that doing it for so long made you a great writer well, as well. Sometimes it helped and sometimes you were completely blocked and couldn't, you know, you just said, there's nothing else in the whole world that you can say about the letter W. Everything right. that has already been said and it, that's I'll it. Tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you something you could say about the letter W, which is something that you never did on Sesame Street. And All that right. is, thank God, it's not the letter X. <laughs> well, there, I'll tell you a funny story about that. And at one point when we, they uh, decreased the number of shows that we were doing, we were originally doing 120 shows, which is six months worth of shows around, you know, five days a week. Then because of funding and because of all kinds of problems. And so we went down to 93 shows a year. Then we went down to 60 shows a year, or 50 shows a year. And then finally the last cut was to 26 shows a year. And 
we were thinking that we had a wonderful time one day when we were talking about if we, if it had been 25 shows a year and they had to throw out one letter of the alphabet, right. you know, who would be the one who was assigned to calling up the letter F and to yes. say, Listen, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> You're out. <laughs> Fabulous. And, and we know I, what the letter F would have said back to us. <laughs> so fortunately, yeah, sure. that. But I'll tell you, Alanta, I want to answer your question seriously in a way, because uh, a couple of years later, two years after, um, I started with Sesame Street in 1974. My son, Jason, was born. Your, your cousin, Jason. And Jason was born with Down syndrome, which meant that he had a condition which, uh, and in the beginning, when he was first born, the doctors gave us some very, very negative advice, told us that he would never do anything. He'd never read. He'd never write. He'd never accomplish anything. It was very, very frightening. And uh, we, were, we were scared to death, and, but you know, we decided to bring him home and give him the most enriched environment and enhanced stimulation and so on that we could and see what we could get out of him. And, and it turned out after when he was about three, it was apparent that he was really bright, that he was not this you know, sort of vegetable that they had predicted, but he was really, understanding things he was learning things and at three he started putting letters together he started making little words out of the scrabble tiles and he started reading the letters off the headline of a newspaper and we said holy cow this kid is going to read and then we realized that there were no kids like this on television you never saw a kid with any kind of a disability and certainly not a cognitive disability. Back then, not just were there no disabled people on television, but there there weren't a lot even in sort of life in Westchester. In the world. Right? It, was, right. it was not unusual back then for people like Jason uh, to spend their, their lives in some sort of institutional setting because exactly. society didn't have the patience and the tolerance for people that were different. That's right. That's right. And there were all kinds of stereotypes and misinformation and all that. Yeah. Kind of. And so here I have this kid who's starting to read and he's and and I work on Sesame Street. I said, maybe, maybe we can put these two things together. So I went to the producers. I said, I've got a three year old kid. He's got Down syndrome, but he's starting to read. He's doing the very stuff that Sesame Street is doing. He's learning the things that we're teaching. It was extraordinary. Can I put him on the show? So they said, sure, why not? Let's try it. And we put Jason, little Jason, he was three. He was so cute. He was so adorable. I remember. And he I was remember. doing, you know, stuff with Cookie Monster, you know. Uh, he did D is for, and they opened up a little picture. He says, doggy. And it says, D is for dog. And, you know, what does the doggy say? He says, woof. And it was just, it was so cute, but it demonstrated to the world that a kid with Down syndrome could do academic stuff. It was, it was. You demonstrated for the world. Well, you you know, well Jason, Jason did, but I put him and there. Jason. Yeah, yep. Right. So the mail that came in, and as a matter of fact, this is interesting that yes, yesterday I was up working in my office, going through some old files. I found a file folder full of thank you letters that people had sent in those early days when Jason was on showing what he could do at, you know, and he was so little and, and these, these letters just blow your mind. 
I never knew that my kid was capable of this kind of thing. I'm going to work harder with my kid from now on, that kind of thing. It was just extraordinary. And people saying, I never saw a kid like this, you know, on television before. It's so refreshing to see a kid like my kid and be, you want to be recognized. You want to just, you know, just uh, whatever it is that you are, you know, whether it's racial or ethnic or in this case, disability, they were never seen yeah. in, the, in the regular ordinary community. And I yeah. had all these letters that people sent. So I went, I showed all these letters to the producers and I said, this is a huge success. And we, you know, why just limit it to Jason? Let's try some other kids. So, you know, so we started with wheelchairs. We started with braces. We started with crutches and with helmets and with all. And that became the trademark of my career. And for the rest of my 45 years, yeah. that's what I specialized in. I specialized yes. in not only showing people with disabilities, but we did some real explanation of stuff. I mean, you know how people, they have a kid and they say to the kid, don't look, don't stare, don't point, don't, you know, don't. And I said, no, that's all wrong. That's all wrong. What we want is for kids to ask their questions. They have a lot of questions. Why is this person using a wheelchair? But, it, you know, so let's ask those questions. Let's answer those questions and give them a little, you know, and take away some of the strangeness, take away some of the fear. We put Linda Bove, who was profoundly deaf, and she was on the show for 30 years. And we did, we not only showed her, you know, how do you wake up in the morning? And she explained how she has a, a, an alarm clock with a light that blinks off and on and wakes her up in the morning. Or how do you know when there's somebody at your door? How, what, how do deaf people have a doorbell? And we answered these questions, it was just great. And mostly we just showed her as a regular ordinary member of the community just right. having friends and doing ordinary things. So that was, you know, that was the trademark of what I was and, doing. And I remember at the time you and you and Chuck were very involved in school for the deaf. And so mm -hmm. you it was it was not just as a writer uh, at Sesame Street where you sort of made your name as an advocate for people with disabilities. Do you want to uh, talk a little bit more about some of the other things that you did, because before you start, I, I remember you even fostering kids, like when their families were sort of in over their heads with a, a recent diagnosis. I, re mm -hmm. I remember how you advocated for people with disabilities. So I'd, I'd love to hear some of that. Okay, well, number one of the first thing that you were referring to is that Chuck and I would go and talk talk at schools, at medical schools, at nursing schools, we would take Jason along with us to demonstrate all the kinds of things that he could do when he was seven. He was reading pretty comfortably at that point. And if you go to a, right. a, a medical school and you're talking to 220 doctors, obstetricians, who are about to go out into the world and give the same stupid negative advice to other mothers. That you had gotten, dead, right. That's right, exactly the terrible stuff that we were told. And you show them that here's this real life kid who can read, he was reading signs off of the wall that he could not otherwise, you know, have 
pre-learned or he was doing some math on the blackboard. And at seven, he was counting to 10 in 12 different languages. It was just a game, but he loved it. And he could count in Russian and in Swedish and in Japanese. And for him to demonstrate that sort of thing to 220 obstetricians, it was dynamite. It was just, it was so exciting. So we would go and give these lectures to anyone who'd stop long enough to listen to us. We had a great time. It was very, very exciting. And Jason loved it too. You know, he, it made him feel very good about what he had accomplished. And uh, it, was, it was lots of fun. We did that for years. And, and years. And the, the started baby, him. Yeah. Started him on a path, <laughs> uh, started him individually on a path that would be very different from, from just about anybody else uh, uh, born with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. Because Jason, I know you mentioned, uh, uh, I know you mentioned a second ago, you know, when he was seven, he could count to 10 in 12 different languages. But, but Jason is, is no parlor trick. You know, you're his mother. Jason is a published author. Jason has been in movies. So, so you started him on a path that would have been impossible, frankly, with, with just about anybody else uh, well, by his side. Well, you have side. to be and very so careful. You have to be very careful when you talk about that stuff because Jason is quite, a, I hesitate to say extraordinary, but he, he has a lot of very extraordinary flashy skills, you know, counting to seven, counting to 12 in seven languages, no, counting to, 10 and 12 languages, <laughs> you know, it's not a very useful skill. It's not something you're ever right. going to make any money at, but it's right. very impressive and it, and it blows people's minds. Okay. But what you have to never forget is that he's got a disability. He learns more slowly. He, yep. you know, at, when he was about eight years old, the rest of the world caught up with him and passed him in the dust. The other eight year old kids were reading like crazy. Yeah, he could read, but he wasn't reading like ordinary eight-year-olds. And you had, I had a whole second crash of sharing with you and everybody that I had to realize that this is a kid with a disability who's doing as well as he can. He's doing remarkable, wonderful, terrific things. But there are an awful lot of things that he has a lot of trouble with and that he's always going to have a lot of trouble with. And so I would never want to communicate to people that we licked it or that it wasn't it went away or there was no problem or anything like that. This has been a disability that's been with him his entire life. Uh, when he was became an adult and we thought perhaps he might be able to live independently in an apartment and we tried. And Jason that. is 45 or six 46 now, right? now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But it was apparent that, you know, he had a lot of real deficits that made it impossible for him to live truly independently. He's now in a very small group home with two roommates and with part-time staff, but it was apparent after a lot of tears and a lot of frustration that the disability is real. You know, and, and I would never want to try to, to uh, imply to people that even if you give your kid a tremendous amount of education and stimulation and everything else, that you're going to make all this go away. He's always going to have Down syndrome, and that's just part of who he is. Uh, and who he is is a pretty terrific guy. He's, a, he's funny, he's uh, sensitive, yeah. he's imaginative, and uh, 
but he's not able to live all by himself. So that's, right. you know, there are things that you have to accept and things that you have to, uh, and, and that's not easy. That's very difficult to do. Um, and, and so I think I was actually going to leave this for later in the conversation, but I think this is the right time. So that experience as a parent and, and anybody who's, who's listening to this, who's got children, can empathize you know, with that experience with 45 years of, of sort of always having to be there because things are, are not going to go the way they often go with uh, other people. And I don't know what the, the proper term is there with uh, people who are ordinarily abled, I guess, is that the right term? Yeah, but typical, typically developing or- it's, Typically it's, developing. And, and, and so as a parent, as a parent, I, I know that that experience moved you. And, and as a writer, I, I know that you created something that has had a, a very lasting effect uh, on this community. And so I, I wanna talk a little bit about Welcome to Holland. Mm -hmm. Okay, Welcome to Holland is a, a small, a very short essay that I wrote a long time ago in uh, 1987. I was actually so Jason would have been around 10 or 11 when you wrote this, right? Uh, let's see, he was born in 74. So he so was 12. 13. Okay. Yeah. Right. The idea of Welcome to Holland uh, is I was I was speaking to a new mom who had just had a new baby and I was sitting on her bedside at the hospital and was trying to explain to her what this experience is all about. So what I said to her was that it's sort of like you're planning a trip to Italy. You're going to take a vacation to Italy and you're going to go to the Colosseum and you're going to go to the Vatican Museum and you're going to go see the Michelangelo David and you're going to go ride in a gondola and you, you go and you buy a bunch of guidebooks and you study up on you know, what you're going to do and you go to Berlitz and you learn some phrases in, in Italian and you make your preparations, all very exciting. So nine months later, you're ready and the plane takes off and it lands and the flight attendant comes in and says to you, welcome to Holland. And you say, Holland, what are you talking about Holland? I'm supposed to be in Italy. My entire life I've planned to go to Italy. And the, she says, well, there's been a change of plans and we've landed in Holland and that's where we've got to stay. And the point is that it's not a disgusting, filthy place with pestilence and plague and rats. And so it's just a different place. It's a little bit slower paced than Italy. It's a little bit less flashy than Italy. But when you've got, been there a while, you got a, guide, a whole bunch of new guidebooks. You got to learn a whole new phrases in another language. You meet a whole bunch of people that you would never have met otherwise. But after you've been there for a while and you look around and you catch your breath, you realize that Holland has windmills and Holland has tulips. And, you know, you even run into a Rembrandt once in a while. But if you are so busy, you know, you, all the people you know are busy coming and going from Italy. And for the rest of your life, you will say, yeah, that's where I was supposed to go. That's what I had planned. That was what I was, that's what every, and everybody's bragging about what a great time they're having in Italy. And you say, well, yeah, that's what I had hoped and had planned for, but I'm in Holland. And uh, if you spend your life mourning the fact that you didn't get to go to Italy, you may not be available 
to appreciate the sometimes very lovely and interesting and different things about Holland. So, okay, that's this piece, Welcome to Holland, that I wrote. And since then, Welcome to Holland has just exploded. It's all over the world, and it's become a kind of a mantra for people going through this experience of getting used to having a kid who's different. How so, many times has it been published, Em? Oh, my God, I can't possibly know that. It's hundreds. Tens of, of hundreds thousands, hundreds of thousands, right. right? I have hundreds of books upstairs in my library where it's been reprinted. I have it in about 14 different languages. Um, people write to me from all over the world asking to reprint it. And uh, I just got a request the other day from Australia. At 40 years since you wrote it, I think you had mentioned just recently you actually had to put up a website for it because there's... I have a website now where it is. Yeah. Uh, people, you know, are contacting me so often to reprint it. So yeah. uh, it's so I would Google that if you're if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in a really uh, reading a piece of writing that that changed people. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, people and, carry you know, so, it around in their wallets and put it on their kitchen yeah. refrigerators. It's everywhere. It's wild. There's a and there's so a website. Really where, yeah, it, it, just look up www.emilypearlkingsley.com. There's no A in Pearl, P-E-R-L. And um, that's my website. And uh, you'll find Welcome to Holland and a whole lot of cute pictures of uh, Muppets. <laughs> nice pictures of me with Ernie and Bert and the, the two-headed monster and uh, cows and stuff like that. How has it changed you, do you feel, as a, as a writer, once you create something as unique as Welcome to Holland and you recognize I've really created something special uh, with words. Does that change you at all as a writer? Other than Daunting. I'm sure you're proud of it, obviously. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, very gratifying to know that people recognize it and uh, people utilize it and share it and so on. It's, it's really wonderful. It's really wonderful. It's, and, you know, one of the things that happened to me is that you, you get a kind of a, disability mindset and you realize that it isn't just Down syndrome or it isn't just an intellectual disability. It's anybody. And everybody, everybody has certain challenges that they have to meet. There are some challenges that I'm grateful I'm not going to have to meet. Jason, with all of his challenges or with all of his, whatever he has or he doesn't have, he will never steal a car. You know, right. <laughs> he will never have a drug problem. I mean, there are certain right, right, things right. that a lot of parents of ordinary, typical developing kids have to deal with that I am blessedly relieved from. Um, right. On the other hand, well, he never got a he never got a woman pregnant, but I think he could have. So you still had that worry. Well, um, there's there's a lot of controversy about that. Oh. <laughs> 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 Not about Jason, <laughs> but um, all of the literature says that men with Down syndrome are not fertile, that they have a very low sperm count. And so they are considered to be incapable of causing a pregnancy. However, and this is a, you know, a, 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 an issue with me, all of those studies were done years and years ago 
And if you look, if you read the literature, if you read books from 40, 50 years ago, it'll say that all these guys are infertile. But no studies have been done on the sperm counts of these new guys, this new generation of guys who were raised at home, who went to regular schools, who are in the right. Special Olympics, who had exercise and good nutrition. Who knows what their fertility is nowadays? And I'm dying for some scientist to do a study on that. Okay. But I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit. You are, you don't even know the term cosplay, I don't think. What's that? Uh, cos, cosplay is a, is a term that, that a lot of the kids are using. And, and so the big thing is to dress up as a character and, and live your life as that character. So if you're a, a Star Wars fanatic, a lot of the kids today that are into cosplay uh, they'll dress up as Han Solo and spend the day walking around as as Han Solo. And and you have a dirty little secret. I, I know you do some cosplay, don't you? Well, Jason has fallen in love. I'm not talking about Jason. No, I'm, me? I'm, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about your Gilbert and Sullivan group. Oh, yes. <laughs> I happen to be a very big fan of, of the uh, comic operas of Gilbert and Sullivan. And I love to sing and uh, I don't sing very well, but I love to sing and I love to sing Gilbert and Sullivan. So I got a group together that meets once a month to sing the operas of Gilbert and Sullivan. And all of us are a little bit wacky and we're a little bit nerd, nerdy, um, but we all love Gilbert and Sullivan. We love dressing up as, as Gilbert and Sullivan characters when we By have- By the way, when, if you yes. want to ever save some words, be more efficient, you can just tell people you love Gilbert and Sullivan, and then you don't have to say that you're nerdy. <laughs> they know that's that just already. Assumed. Right. They just assume it after that. Right. So well, if you just you want know, to be yeah. more efficient, there's more to the Gilbert and Sullivan. I mentioned cosplay because there's there's more to this story than just a bunch of old people getting together once a month and <laughs> and singing so, some songs that are even older than them. Yeah. You have a the basement of your house is enormous. It's probably 2,000 square feet, thereabouts. Oh. Maybe not that big, but it's close. And, and, and it, you built a stage down there, and you have a closet, an enormous closet filled with costumes. Yes, people love to come to my house to get, you know, it's the best dress-up closet <laughs> in the world. Yes. And, um, you know, when we do the Gilbert and Sullivan operas once a month, we... Uh, we just dress them up a little bit with pirate hats or, you know, English bobby hats or uh, mustaches or, you know, feather bullets or whatever. It just sort of makes it a little bit more festive. Um, so kids love to come and play at my house and, and, and play in the dress up closet. It's it's a wonderful. I'm going to post with this. I'm going to post some videos of Miranda and her friends playing downstairs in your basement. Great. That's great. I have shots of them on the stage. I have shots of them in costumes. Singing. Oh, that's I've, wonderful. That's great. Yeah. That's great. I'll you got with that with the Japanese stuff from the Mikado. Everything. Uh, it's all oh, that's, down there. That's yeah, great. Yeah, I've got some fabulous, fabulous videos. Yeah. It's so, something I love. I love very much. And it gives me a, a lot of pleasure, a lot of joy. And uh, and it's been fun for a lot of people to have during the, the COVID crisis. Of course, we've had to shut down and we have not been able to get together for a year. So I'm hoping right. that soon we'll be able to start having our monthly meetings again. But we have gotten together on Zoom. And even though we can't really sing a whole opera on Zoom, 
we still, we play Gilbert and Sullivan trivia games and uh, we play Pictionary and we have a lot of fun getting together just because we have this interest that we share. So it's, it's a lot of fun. But I thought you were referring to, to Jason's, Jason uh, is mad about Disney animated movies. He is- Yes, I'm he aware. Could, he could be the archivist for the Disney Corporation. He knows every date and every, you know, you ask him, you know, when was Bambi first released? He'll tell you the day and the week and, you know, he knows everything. But when Frozen came out, Jason fell madly in love with Elsa from Frozen. And that has, uh, you know, occupied his fantasy life for six years. Yep. Uh, and so he has a lot of, of stuff. Maybe he got this from me, but he's got a lot of stuff in his room with little, you know, crowns and statues and uh, photos and uh, whatnot to, uh, in homage to Elsa. And he's writing a second book now he wrote one book i should show it to you i should get it and hold it up the first book he wrote with his pal mitchell levitz who also has down syndrome that i book, remember mitchell that was called count us in growing up with down yep. syndrome it's a super yep. wonderful book it's all about their feelings about all kinds of topics about politics and religion and science and school and family and all sorts of things girls and sex and whatnot it was a Great, great book, and it was entirely in their own words. Nothing was fixed and nothing was corrected for syntax or anything. So um, here it is all these years later, and he's writing. It turns out that when Frozen came out about six years, years ago, seven years ago, whatever it is, and he fell in love with Elsa, he started keeping a diary. And he has been journaling every day since that time. So he's now filled up. 19 volumes of his wow. thoughts and his innermost feelings. And, uh, and so I'm, de I'm devoted and uh, determined to make it into a book. It's just wonderful. It's, his writing is, is imaginative and funny and uh, interesting. Well, he's funny because his mother is funny. Well, you know, we, we had a lot of laughs growing up. We sure did. He's, he's a very yeah. funny guy. Yes. We have a new baby in our family. And when I told Jason that this new baby had been born, it's a new nephew for him. And he said to me, what is the baby's name? And I said, the baby's name is Rhodes. And he says, no, 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 where we're going, we don't need no damn roads. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was so perfect, just like that. He had that line from Back to the Future right there, right there. No, we don't need no damn roads. So <laughs> he's a very, very funny, illiterate, illiterate kind of guy. So, And what can I say? What I mean, our conversations are always fabulous to me. It's why I keep showing up at your house all the time and talking for hours at a time. And so uh, we, we got, unfortunately, I could talk to you for hours, but there are some limitations. We don't want this to go for too long. Uh, any final words that the, the only member of my family with a wiki page uh, wants to share <laughs> with, with paint dealers around the United States? <laughs> oh, well, 
I mean, it's been a blessing to have you in my life, obviously, and and uh, <laughs> I love you so much, and I and Miranda, too, of course, and um, but just I mean, what I would just say to to people in general is that you just have to do what you can with what you got. You know, it doesn't doesn't pay to weep a lot about what what you didn't get, and when you could be spending time making the most of what. You did get, of course, not everything is going to be perfect and there are going to be challenges and there are going to be letdowns. And that's just the way it is. It's just um, what, what you get is what you get. And, and um, I'm immensely proud of Jason. I'm proud of the body of work that I produced. I think that uh, if it was helpful to people, I'm really, really glad um it's been a good run it's been i'm look 23 I'm emmys i just turned 81 i can't believe that i can't um, i can't accept it really but i hope we got a whole lot more steam going for uh, a whole lot more fun to have oh yeah oh yeah but 20 20 23 <laughs> emmys that that that's a calling card right there and and i've said i've said this to you before i i i know that the 10 commandments say Thou shalt not covet, but I, I think I've been clear. We don't want to wait till after you're gone, Em, to find out that I'm the 24th person that you love the most on this planet. Right? So, so I think they're, you know what I'm telling you. They're all in my will. It's all okay. written down. <laughs> all right, Em. Well, Emily, Emily Pearl Kingsley, what my Aunt Emily, what a, a great experience this has been for me. And I've, I've loved it so very much. It's and, always and, a joy to talk to you, and uh, this has been. And it great sounds time. like I'm going to see you next week. You're going to text me when we get done here. Text me the date that you need me, and I'll I'm happy to take you to the doctor. All right, we'll talk about that, and I uh, hope okay, to see yeah. you real soon. And uh, my love to you and all of your extended people. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> Alrighty, I'll talk to you soon. I love it. Okay. This is I love you and Steinlein.